flies. All of us in the cattle business deal with them. In fact, they attribute to over a billion dollars in potential financial losses to our cattle industry each year. That includes you. And before you repeat what you've always done or get sold on the latest product from the feed store or rep or get caught up in the latest all natural methods, maybe it's time to reevaluate. They've got to be prepared and proactive this time of year. And it's not easy to do because you have to be forward in your thinking. Dave Boxler with the University of Nebraska Lincoln is my guest today as we discuss the various fly control methods from those that have been around for several years to some new emerging ways. I'm not saying you're going to change anything, but at least you're going to have more confidence in the direction you're headed, or you might be considering options that do fit your management. Don't buzz off. Stick around as we talk fly control on this episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show. Welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. Thanks for joining us here on our program. This is episode 118. We're glad to have you along for the ride here today. Well, I like to keep you up to speed from time to time as far as what's going on here on our place, the X-Ring Ranch here in northeastern Wyoming. And uh, as you know, for for a lot, if you've listened for some time, we don't calve until a little bit later. We're just now uh, getting started with the cows. The heifer started on Easter Sunday. In fact, when we had our first heifer calf that we know of and uh that that's a key part right there that we know of anyway so uh we were i was sitting down over coffee uh last week early last week with my nephew tristan that works for me and we were getting all of our records put into our our software program so we kind of know what's going on what's all calved and kind of where things are progressing hoping that the vet was right in his preg records as we showed a lot of these uh, these cattle were going to be calving in the first cycle this year and so with that in mind we're putting things in and notice we're more than halfway done with the heifers which they're pretty much on track with the way they should be but only notice that we had only about 30 cows calving so that day we were going to go out and move cows uh, to different pasture, move the heavies into a different pasture. So when we got out there, now keep in mind, I've been demoted to the four-wheeler here temporarily as I'm trying to get healed up from getting bucked off a few weeks ago. Actually, about a month ago, I was still kind of healing up from that. So I'm, I'm been demoted a little bit. And so anyways, we're out and we get into the pasture where we're going to go grab all the heavies. And I'll tell you what, the uh, I think the vet was a little closer to on than we thought originally because we have calves everywhere and which is good because we want them calves showing up in the first cycle that's kind of what was the target when we started the whole process anyways but anyways we are full bore steam ahead going full and strong and calving here on the x-ring in northeastern wyoming and uh, hope you all are getting along in your spring work as well on our program here today yeah we are talking fly control as we said in the opening we all deal with it yep it's just how you're going to deal with it what are you planning to do today's program i think will help you along those lines just to think through that. Like I said, you might listen to today's program and not change anything you've done. It just might give you more confidence in what you have been doing. But I think you're going to find, you're going to hear some things that are, are educational. I, I figured, you know, for myself, shoot, I've been around cattle my whole life for the most part and thought I knew about everything there was and the different various means of uh, fly control that are out there. But I found uh, it very educational for myself as well. And I think you will be today. Uh, Dave Boxler, uh, who's an extension educator, with the University of Nebraska-Lincoln out of the West Central Research and Extension Center in 
North Platte is joining me here today, not only uh, as a guest, but also he's done quite a bit of research as well on this particular issue. So I thought he would be a good guest to have on our program here today. So that will be later on. Of course, meteorologist Don Day will be joining us in the latter half of the show today to give us a look at our long-term weather. Quick thank you to our sponsors here today, Allflex. Cattle identification and record keeping should be easy. So now you can tie your visual tag and your EID tag and your genetic data to one management number with the Allflex match sets. You can find out more by going to their website at allflexusa.com. And Inherit Select from Zoetis, providing commercial cow-calf producers with genetic insights to make replacement female selection and breeding decisions. You can find out more at inheritprogress.com. And speaking of fly control, well, MLS Tubs, you know, don't gamble with fly control this summer. MLS Tubs are a sure bet. All kinds of tubs for all kinds of needs. You can find out more about MLS Tubs at mlstubs.com. Well, now it is time to check in with the captain, Tim O'Byrne, publisher and editor of Working Ranch Magazine for this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents. Hey, Justin. Hey, everybody out there in Working Ranch Radio Land. Let's talk footwear for your stirrups. Now, there's a reason why us big outfit cowboys always wear a high-heeled underslung boot with a shank in it and a thin leather sole that you can easily kick out of or roll out of if you get accidentally hung up. It's not just going to happen with your Bronx either. It's going to happen with any horse you happen to ride. He could slip and fall, kind of unseat you a little bit. Next thing you know, you're going off and you do not want to get hung up. It is potentially tragic. I have seen it. So what we want to avoid is any of these boots with the big, thick, heavy, crepey sole, rubbery sole. It's like those boots are made for doing stuff on the ground. And then we, us big outfit cowboys would never uh, do, we don't even walk with our good riding boots because we don't want to wear out the leather sole. As soon as we get off our horses, we change into our, whatever you want to call them, just farmer boots or whatever, and do whatever it is we need to do, shoe a horse or go fix fence or whatever. We do that. Um, also, our, our spurs are set on those um, those boots and we rarely ever take them off uh, off the boots and then we just kind of set them aside when we're done riding. In the wintertime, we change over to our uh, packer boots and whatever you got for a boot, but a winter stirrup, which is a little bit wider, a little bit lower, and um, you, you don't stick your foot in, in the entire way. And you got to be careful about that, too, because you're on slick ground. So that is my Tim's two cents today. Pay attention to the footwear that you have in your stirrup because you do not want to get hung up. Back to you in the booth. All right, thanks, Captain. And yeah, absolutely. You know, for ourselves, for our kids, good advice on what we're wearing on their feet. And uh, that can happen so quick that you don't even know. And before too long, you're in a wreck and it's hard to, absolutely, it's hard to get out of. So thank you for that. Well, before we head to break here, I was mentioning earlier that we're in the middle of cabin here on the X ring. Well, also something else that happens this time of the year is us getting our water system and our cistern tanks filled back up. And I got to tell you something that I have absolutely come to 
rely on with my water system is my remote water monitoring system from Tank Tote. You know, I can keep an eye on my complete water supply and really my cistern tanks are key to my system here. So I want to know what the levels that they're at and I can do that. I can get a report whenever I program a report in or if I want one instantaneously, I can get it then. These units are solar powered. They connect through satellite or cellular networks and they can run year round. Now, if you want to find out more, go to their website at tanktoad.com for more information about their monitoring systems or also their well controllers or generators and many other products that they have for remote monitoring needs. Metal Arc Solutions is the company. They are a USA company right here in the good old USA. And uh, you can find out more on their website at tanktoad.com. It's what we use here on the X-Ring. Check it out for yourselves and be sure you let them know you heard it here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Well, stay with us. When we come back, we're going to get into our feature topic here today on Fly Control. We'll be back on the Working Ranch Radio Show after this. Every year you pick your replacement heifers. Some become profitable cows. Others disappoint. How can you make more reliable selections? Genetic testing. Commercial cow-calf producers like you are using Inherit Select from Zoetis. You gain valuable predictions, including cow fertility, size and soundness, feed efficiency, growth and carcass merit, as well as easy-to-use economic indexes. This improves your selection, breeding, and marketing decisions. Request a call from InheritProgress.com and ask about free TSUs to get you started. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. As we head now into our featured topic here today on fly control. And yeah, it is that time of the year. I know for some folks, maybe you've already uh, implemented some methods of that. If you're a little bit more in the southern climate than I am, uh, you might have already started that here up in the north. We haven't quite got that far. Seeing a few, but that's still a ways off and we could have a freeze any day that might slow things down just a little bit. But nevertheless, it's always good this time of the year to talk this out and review as things have changing and uh, there's definitely been a lot of uh, different means and methods of fly control over the years and in the last several years some different methods more natural style methods that are coming into play as well so we're going to talk all about those kinds of things and uh, when we look at this I think it's also important to realize that that it does play a pretty significant economic impact to our industry in terms of our calf weaning weights they say that flies can affect anywhere from four to fifteen percent of our weight gain on weaned calves that could be 12 to 20 pounds how about on those yearlings up to 18 percent they say that the flies can affect on yearling weight gain and then for the entire uh, industry as a whole they can account for about one billion with a B, $1 billion worth of loss. So definitely something to be aware of. And our show here today, I think we're going to have some good dialogue. Now, joining me on our program today is Dave Boxler. He is an extension educator with the University of Nebraska-Lincoln out of their West Central Research and Extension Center in North Platte, Nebraska. And he's also been responsible for several different papers and studies on fly control. So Dave, thanks for joining us here today on the Working Ranch Radio Show. You're welcome, Justin. Well, Dave, before we get into some of the methods of fly control that we see out there, in addition to some of the newer things that we're hearing as well in our industry, 
Let's get to the root of the problem. And I know this might be a bit elementary or uh, redundant to some folks uh, in the facts that you might know a lot about fl- flies and, and various things. But just for the sake of our conversation here today, let's start at the very foundational element of this. And let's talk specifically the fly that we're dealing with that you feel probably has the biggest impact on our cattle herds. Okay, well, the uh, the primary fly that really impacts uh, many producers across the United States is the horn fly. And that's a very small uh, blood feeding fly um, that stays on the animal almost exclusively. And um, it's the number one major pest of, of pasture and rangeland throughout the United States. And producers probably lose over a billion dollars in uh, productivity due to um, this particular fly species. Mm-hmm. Dave, let's now talk some of the different fly control methods that are out there. There's really a, a wide variety of things. There's continuing to develop more things and some some more natural methods that we've heard here in the industry as of late. So let's go through some of those and talk those out just a bit. And I know for, for a lot of us, um, a little bit redundant because I know uh, you've probably been using many of these methods and are aware of them, but at the same time, good to hear about uh, uh, some of the different things that are out there as well. So Dave, let's go through these different methods of fly control that we see in the industry today. It can be managed in several different ways. It depends on your management system. Uh, We still have dust bags out there and back rubbers and oilers. Both of those um, will provide pretty good fly control if they're utilized in a forced use setup. And I know many producers can't do that. So if you free choice a dust bag or an oiler, expect anywhere from 25 to 50% less control from those two uh, methodologies. Horons are still very attractive for producers and they're especially used as the animals are first sent to pasture. And that'll give you probably, oh, uh, up to 28 days of, of horn fly control. So they'll have to be retreated through the fly season. One thing I do want to talk about is that uh, some people will use a, uh, a ivermectin type product mm-hmm. we call them mls for uh, applying porons this time of year and they can be actually pretty uh, negative against the the dung beetle so i would avoid using any of the mls between uh, may and uh, october 1st for fly control mm-hmm. we've seen a real increase in interest in animal sprays over the last five to ten years and um, many producers are utilizing utility vehicles with uh, low pressure sprayers and are going out and uh, applying products to their cattle in in the pasture and uh, that'll provide anywhere from seven to 14 days here in nebraska we've also been utilizing a another delivery system and it's a mist blower sprayer and um, here again, it's a little bigger unit than a low pressure sprayer, but uh, producers will drive out into the pasture, spray their cattle, and then move on to the next pasture. So it's been um, pretty well received and um, something that if you don't want to use a low pressure sprayer, you might look into a mist blower type sprayer. Mm-hmm. Oral larvicides. Uh, or uh, insect and insect growth regulators are still very, very widely used. And um, they work by killing the developing hornfly larvae in the manure. And uh, some of the common products are Altocid, uh, Raybon, and uh, Dimelin. 
And um, it's usually presented either in mineral uh, blocks, tubs, or loose mineral, and sometimes salt. The issue that we have with oral larvicides is that you have to ensure steady consumption. The cattle have to go and, and eat the salt or mineral on a regular basis, and I'm talking about at least every two days. Mm-hmm. The other issue tied to this type of delivery system is the fact that we do have hornfly immigration, and where we get flies from a neighboring herd, and the the flies will be uh, actually being emerging or hatching from um, manure paths in other pastures and moving on to your animals that might be receiving the the oral larvicide. And sometimes that immigration masks the effectiveness of these types of products because the oral larvicides have no effect on adult flies. So that's something to keep in consideration. And also to increase the effectiveness of these, you really should deploy them at least 30 days before fly season. Mm-hmm. So those are something to yeah. keep in mind. Yeah. Dave, definitely one of the methods of fly control over the years that a lot of folks have used have been fly tags. Let's talk a little bit about those. Uh, insecticide ear tags are still fairly popular. I know some producers have kind of shied away from them because of some resistance issues. There still are a number of ear tags out there that will provide pretty decent control. The thing that uh, is of concern when it comes to using insecticide ear tags is application timing. Some producers go to grass early, so they want to put that tag in late April or early May, and that is really too early. I prefer to see the ear tags applied late May or early June, which ensures the most response from that uh, that input of that ear tag and get the longest period of control. So um, also, if you're dealing with a face fly issue, um, you need to tag the calf also. And certainly I encourage people to follow the label instructions on, on the ear tag uh, boxes. Mm-hmm. follow them closely. We do have uh, another delivery system that is really designed primarily for the smaller producer who cannot gather their cattle and pen them up. And that's a compressed air application device. It's like a paintball gun and it will shoot a capsule out with insecticide and uh, it'll provide anywhere from 10 to 35 days of control. So. That may be something uh, for the smaller producer to look at. Mm-hmm. Dave, let's look at now at some uh, some different methods that maybe would be considered more in the natural realm of things here for fly control. Well, there is a, a mechanical trap that was designed in 1938 by a gentleman by the name of Bruce. It's called the Bruce Walkthrough Fly Trap, and it is a wooden structure, and it's about 10 foot long in, in the trapping area. And it has a series of strips or made out of canvas or carpet that knock the flies off the animal as the animal walks through. And since flies are attracted to light, the flies will either fly up to the top and get trapped or to the sides of the trap. And here again, like the dust bags and oilers, it works best if the animals have to walk through it to get to water or mineral. Mm -hmm. And it can reduce horn fly numbers uh, up to 50%. A colleague of mine in uh, North Carolina last year looked at it, and he reduced horn fly numbers by 41%, and it was significantly below the uh, 
the horn fly numbers that were on the untreated group. So it may not be for every anybody or everybody, but it might fit some uh, people's management style. And um, I've had this year so far about six people reach out to me from all over the country wanting the plans for building mm-hmm. this particular fly trap. Hmm. Well, it's, it definitely sounds quite interesting for sure. My guest today is, uh, we're joined today by Dave Boxler. He is with the University of Nebraska-Lincoln as an extension educator in their West Central Research and Extension Center. When we come back, we're going to talk more about some other methods that are you're probably hearing rumblings about anywhere from garlic salt to apple cider vinegar to also genetics. We're going to talk more about that when we come back here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Don't gamble with fly control this summer. MLS tubs are a sure bet. MLS high-performance, low-moisture cooked molasses tubs provide controlled, consistent supplement delivery to your cattle, horses, sheep, and goats. MLS takes pride in their line of products that are proven to lower your feed supplement costs. All kinds of tubs for all kinds of needs. Learn more about MLS tubs at mlstubs.com. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. My guest today is Dave Boxler. He's an extension educator with the University of Nebraska-Lincoln out of their West Central Research and Extension Center in North Platte, Nebraska. And uh, in the first segment, Dave is outlining some of the issues and some of the control mechanisms that are available when it comes to the uh, controlling horn flies as they are uh, pretty significant to most of us in our operations and uh, some means of control uh, can have some economic return to us. Uh, Dave, there's been a lot of talk the last several years uh, of different methods that kind of moving away from some of the uh, some of the chemical type methods that are out there looking to more natural things such as garlic, salt, apple cider vinegar. Let's go. Let's talk a little bit about that. And I know you've done a little bit of research on the garlic salt. I have. I've uh, done two studies over the last uh, six years. Uh, The last one being last summer here in uh, uh, Blaine County, Nebraska, we did a, a, a study and we utilized um, a garlic powder, a 2% uh, powder that uh, we mixed uh, initially in salt. And then as the summer progressed, we uh, we switched over to a mineral. And um, we were monitoring the, the fly numbers uh, using uh, digital imagery about every two weeks. And um, the consumption of the of the garlic, whether it was in the salt uh, form or in the uh, mineral, was really very very high. I was quite surprised. Mm-hmm. So the cattle were were really going to it. And in the first study I did a number of years ago, we saw the same thing. Consumption was excellent. Uh, fly control probably not at the level that most people would really like. And again, uh, when I evaluate a fly control methodology, I always include an untreated control for comparison, and I always use the economic injury level of 200 horn flies per animal as the target. Mm -hmm. And once the horn fly numbers exceed the economic injury level, I kind of label that uh, particular product as uh, not being successful. And in the bo- in both studies using garlic, I found that to be and um, exceeded the economic injury level significantly. In fact, in one study, we had to go in and make a rescue treatment uh, the latter part of the season. So uh, I know that there's a lot of variability in sources of garlic. 
I've heard that from other people. And uh, our ga- uh, garlic was sourced out of California. And I selected a, a garlic powder that livestock producers here in Nebraska were currently using. So I thought it would be a valid comparison. And uh, again, it was a, at a 2% concentration. But I do know that uh, garlic products that uh, come in from other countries that may not be at the quality that is produced here in, in the United States. Now, you know, we have different categories of garlic, and that may play a role in the effectiveness of your hornfly treatment. There's some discussion out there that uh, garlic oil provides a greater degree of control, and we may take a look at that here in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and to compare it to the garlic powder that we looked at last year. Mm-hmm. Well, Dave, there's no question that th- this concept of utilizing garlic salt for fly control is kind of a thing in our industry right now. It's not necessarily brand new because it has been out for several years, but nevertheless, we do see people seeking some alternative methods for fly control. And I, I noted here that you, in your study, you weren't real pleased necessarily with the results you were seeing after two years of study on that and maybe not seeing the the type of control that I guess what I feel is maybe being claimed in the industry out there. However, with reservation too, because there's a lot of variables in terms of, as you'd mentioned, you know, where you're getting the garlic from the in the mix and how that, how you're putting that product out together, uh, whether you're using powders, granules to oils even. And so it sounds to me like the use of garlic salt is still to be determined? I think so. I think there's more work that uh, will be done in the future, and uh, maybe we can filter out some of those issues as we move forward. Mm -hmm. Now, the theory behind how garlic is supposed to work is that garlic has a lot of organosulfur compounds, and once once garlic is ingested in the animal, they start breaking down into volatile metabolites, and these metabolites then are are transported in the blood to the skin and liberated from the skin. That's how it's supposed Mm -hmm. to work. So uh, I think that uh, depending upon the quality of garlic, the type of of volatiles that you have and the concentration of these volatiles may uh, play a real role in, in how effective the repellency of this this product works. Uh, another quick thing, and, and maybe this isn't so much fly control. Um, I guess it could be, but I've also heard it more for wintertime use in terms of lice and those kinds of things would be apple cider vinegar. Any, have you heard, heard anything on that? Well, it's interesting. You bring that up a few years ago. I was able to, I was asked to evaluate apple cider vinegar for horn fly control. Mm-hmm. And I did, I did a short study uh, used a 5% concentration of uh, apple cider vinegar bought right off the shelf and uh, applied it undiluted. And I received about a 50% reduction in horn fly numbers two hours after application. Uh, 24 hours later, I saw no difference in horn fly numbers between the treated cattle and the untreated cattle. Mm-hmm. So there again, it's it really does rely on steady consumption is what I, I guess what I gather from your comment there. 
Well, we actually sprayed this on the animal oh, okay. directly. It was okay. an animal spray. Okay. Yeah. And I guess the way I had heard it was people were applying it to hay that the animals were consuming. Another question here, and that is on the genetic side of things. Um, we do hear folks breeding genetically for animals that are a little bit more fly resistance. What do you know about that? Well, there, uh, there are studies that are underway that are looking at the genetics, selecting for those traits. Uh, the University of Georgia just completed a study here recently. And, uh, you know, there are animals that uh, have a higher tolerance uh, than uh, other animals. Mm -hmm. And you can see that even within your herd. So I think it's a slow process selecting for, uh, you know, the genetics uh, component. But I know producers, there are some producers that are doing that. And I think that you're going to see more research gravitating into that area. Uh, in the near future. I know of a number of researchers uh, at other universities that are looking at that very closely. So I think uh, down the road, we might see uh, more information coming out on that. It takes a while to gather that type of data. Yeah, yeah I, I could see that being a, a, an extensively long process, very valuable information to get at one point. And I just, I know from our, my own experience with our herd, we, you know, we run primarily a commercial cow herd here on our ranch. And then my son has also run off to the side about 20 head of Coriannis every year. Interestingly enough, I don't see the flies as heavy on the Coriannis as I do our other cattle. Well, there are some species, Boss indicus, they carry uh, fewer flies. Unfortunately, they don't do well up in this environment. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there are some cattle species that will carry fewer flies. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of it, I think, is is uh, depends upon the volatiles that uh, the animals are emitting because uh, flies are attracted to both. Uh, volatile organic compounds that are emitted, and there's a whole series of different compounds that uh, uh, are liberated mm -hmm. via the, the skin and hair. Mm -hmm. So uh, we, we tried to do a little bit of, of that type of work a few years ago where we were trying to, to capture some of those, and we, we did capture a, a few compounds, but we weren't able to uh, get them identified. It's a very expensive process, but we, we do know that uh, you know, bulls always carry a larger number of horn flies, and that's because they have a higher level of testosterone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, lactic acid is, is another component that is an attractant for flies. So as we navigate through looking at the genetics of the animal and selecting for these genes, we'll find more and more information out that will help us to manage this fly. Mm -hmm. That'll be interesting as that continues to come out. My guest today, Dave Boxler, he's an extension educator with the West Central Research and Extension Center in North Platte, Nebraska for the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. One more segment with Dave when we come back and I want to talk a little bit more, expand a little bit more a bit on similar to what we were talking about, such as what about the health of the animal? How does that play into overall fly control and just maintaining, uh, keeping some resistance that way? We're going to talk more about it when we come back here on the working ranch radio show you know big cows come with big feed bills which is why smart genetic selection can pay off in your cow herd did you know Simmental influenced cows are an average 74 pounds lighter at maturity than angus sired counterparts according to a recent u.s meat animal research center study now while Simmental is sized for more efficient gains 20-year genetic trend lines also show the breed offers reliable calving ease, early growth, and cow longevity. 
That's a balanced herd built for profit. Sim Genetics, giving you more per head, period. Stand strong, Simmental. And we welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. Our subject here today is on fly control. And yeah, it is that time of the year. It's a subject that always comes up, it seems like, this time of the year. Maybe for folks in the further southern area climate, maybe it's been a little, uh, been on your mind a little bit longer than for those of us up north that we're still uh, in areas where we can get a freeze at night. And that kind of has a tendency to slow the bug uh, population down just a little bit. But nevertheless, it is a subject that, as we talked about in the first segment here today, uh, the economic impact is pretty pretty severe to our industry as a whole, and it can have be detrimental to our herds as well. My guest today is Dave Boxler. He's an extension educator for the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He's out of North Platte, Nebraska, which is where the West Central Research and Extension Center is there for the University of Nebraska. And Dave, as we were talking in the previous segment about some of the uh, genetics that are some folks are exploring and, and looking at ways that breeding animals that have that natural resistance to flies. And it got me to thinking, uh, as you were also talking about things that do draw flies in, such as for bulls. We always see bulls just covered in flies due to the testosterone. And then, of course, lactic acid also brings in flies on these cattle as well. Uh, and I can't help but think, you know, really... Uh, the type of animals that also draw a lot of flies are sick ones. And so when we look at from that perspective and, and looking at, you know, having good, healthy animals, which, you know, they need to be uh, on a good mineral program more than likely, making sure they're getting those right salt intake and those kinds of things really are another factor in effective means of fly resistance. Well, certainly, if you if you maintain your, your animals in, in a healthy mode, that's going to help reduce the the impact by the fly. What's interesting that you bring this subject up, we're, we're actually looking at uh, animal stressors. And one of the, the one of the stressors that you can measure is cortisol. And uh, we, we do know that there's been some research done in, in Europe that shows that increased fly numbers on cattle will increase cortisol levels, which will then increase methane levels. So what we're actually trying to do in a preliminary study this summer is actually see if we could correlate horn fly numbers to increase or decrease uh, levels of cortisol. And we're going to be trying we're going to be trying to measure uh, these cortisol levels uh, three different ways. We're going to take blood samples. We're also going to take uh, smears of, of saliva, and the the one uh, measurement that is going to be the least evasive is uh, actually sampling the manure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we think that what we're trying to do is is correlate those cortisol levels to different fly populations. And rather than using a static economic injury level, we could, we could use, uh, you know, stress levels to indicate, you know, what our populations are and how they affect the animal overall. The industry is, is certainly... Uh, been targeted by uh, a number of people indicating that they're, you know, the cattle are, are producing a lot of methane. Mm-hmm. And we're wondering if uh, some of these fly populations might be contributing to that issue. Mm-hmm. That would lead me to down a road. I wasn't necessarily going this way as when we when I was first going. But when we talk about cortisol, that's related to anxiety in our cattle. Then it really comes back to maybe some 
management methods in terms of keeping the stress down in them cattle that can also elevate their self-immunity to these to these flies? Well, certainly if you can reduce stress levels, you're certainly going to make a, a happier animal. And, you know, one of the stressors is heat. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're also going to be looking at, at heat and flies as a, uh, an element of stress on these cattle. And as soon as an animal gets stressed, it changes its behavior. And these cortisol levels fluctuate depending upon where the animal is, how stressed it is. So managing the animals in a least stressful way certainly would be helpful. Mm-hmm. Maintaining a good healthy diet and minerals and whatnot is very important. It's no different than human beings. Yeah. If, if you provide the right nutrients to humans, they will be healthier. And the same thing applies to cattle and livestock. Mm-hmm. Dave, as, as we're talking about this, one of the things that I just can't help but think, and I think this is one of the reasons why us as ranchers sometimes, you know, like in my mind, I've got, okay, this is what I'm going to do for fly control, or this is what I'm choosing to not do because I want to go down a, you know, maybe a lower input route. And I, I'm concerned about, you know, dung beetles and various other things. But every year I come back to this and I have to reevaluate because there really are a lot of variables. When you look at things like, like, as you were just saying there, heat being a stress which we all deal with heat at different times of the summer, but there are some summers, it's just a hotter summer, hot, dry summer. Mm-hmm. And every year there's what I, what I see with fly control is, boy, it's, it's almost a decision. You got to reevaluate every spring because there are so many variables. Well, uh, a good example of that is this spring that we've, you know, going through right now in, in 2023, it started off very cold we had spurts of, of warmth and then it, it cooled back down. So if you're trying to plan your fly control based on the weather, it can change very quickly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like producers, like that example I gave producers applying their air tags in, in late April, well, you get a couple snowstorms on yeah. those cattle. Mm-hmm. And then now it's going to turn off hot and you're going to see fly numbers really increase very quickly. So they've got to be prepared and proactive this time of year. And it's not easy to do because you have to be forward in your thinking. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's difficult based on Mother Nature. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the other things, and you talked about it, I think, in the first segment, maybe when we were talking about different methods of control and Altacid being a a method of through the consumption and and the larvae in the cow pats there. But and that was whether the neighbors are doing anything to control their flies. And I well, feel like that's a big deal. It's a big factor. Absolutely. And actually, the situation we described, it can actually impact any fly control method that you've selected. If you get that huge immigration of flies in from your neighbors, I don't care what you're using. It's going to be impacting the performance of, of whatever you're using on your cattle, mm-hmm. whether it's a feed through an ear tag a spray or dust bag or oiler. It can affect all of those. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage, and, and you know, uh, and I talk about later in the season when we have huge increases in horn fly numbers, and I encourage everybody to do something to reduce the pressure on those animals. 3,000 horn flies over 90 days can withdraw a gallon of blood. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you have thousands and thousands of flies out there, 
It's changing the behavior of the animal. It's impacting productivity and it's impacting your pocketbook. Yeah. Well, and that's the bottom line. You want to provide good animal welfare and you want to increase productivity. And to do that, you need to provide some type of fly control. Mm -hmm. And I think, Dave, that's as you and I were talking before we started on air here was that's always where I've struggled just a little bit because there's no shortage of products out there that we can look at to to push you know to put these cows on, put on the cows go through the cows and for me I, it's a matter of well I mean I know I can do a lot of these things but boy it's got a pencil too I mean it's got to make sense from an economic standpoint well uh, you know beef prices are fairly high right now mm -hmm. uh, there's a tendency now that they may fall a little bit so you need to squeeze every every uh, bit of profit out of that animal as you can as the market fluctuates. And if you can put on a few more pounds, um, you know, at weaning, 10 to 15 more pounds, that's going to impact your bottom line. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we forget about the animal welfare aspects of this. And you can see animals out there really hurting, especially when you get a combination of huge populations of flies and heat. You'll see them if they can run to a body of water, they'll be standing in the body of, of water to get away from the flies and cool down. Mm -hmm. Well, that's stress, that's costing you money. And that's, you know, so you gotta look at it from several uh, viewpoints, in my opinion. Dave, as you look ahead, and and we talked about some of the different methods that are out there, and of course, we you can't talk about some of the fly control methods that are out there unless you're also talking about some of the resistance buildup that has happened over the years. As you look ahead in the future, what's some of your concerns for fly control, and, and what do you think needs to be done? The biggest problem that we have in our industry right now is the lack of new chemistries coming forward. And that is that is a big concern of for me and, and, uh, and my colleagues that we're running out of, if you can use this analogy, uh, bullets for the gun. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we need we need to, uh, to find some new chemistries. And it's very expensive for the industry people to develop and get labeled. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a, another hurdle that we're facing, but we're seeing a degree of resistance out there too and cross resistance mm -hmm. so by continuing to use the same modes of actions or chemistries year after year we are putting ourselves into a very tight corner mm -hmm. and uh, i've been working with a, a compound for the last 15 years and we're finally getting it to the point where we're going to try to get it labeled through the epa and it is a, a natural product it's comprised of fatty acids, middle chain fatty acids. Mm -hmm. And I just completed a two-year study last summer looking at this product through a automated sprayer, cattle sprayer. Mm -hmm. And it's very safe to, uh, to the animal, to humans, and to non-target species. And it has very, very quick kill. When we send animals through that sprayer, within 30 seconds, we can see dead horn flies. It happens that quickly. Mm -hmm. It will have to be reapplied on a more frequent basis because that's just the way it, it acts. Our newer chemistries are going to probably require us to apply them more frequently than the old days. Mm -hmm. And that's just something that we have to deal with and be able to manage and integrate into our, our systems. Mm -hmm. But that's one product that I've looked at for a long time and it it looks pretty good. It does have some nuances that we have to deal with, but that's what we're faced with in the industry because yeah. we're just not seeing 
uh, new chemistries moving forward. Mm-hmm. And David, it's interesting when you said new chemistry, my first thought was just, you know, maybe more of a, the methods that have been out there or that you somewhat referred to in the 1950s. But but we're also talking about we've got a push and, and even from our our folks that are, are buying the beef off the meat counters. There's also a push too of an all natural type product. And so as you were saying there, just because you're saying chemistry doesn't mean it's not an all natural product. No, no. And uh, the, the product that I talked about, the fatty acid product, it is a natural uh, product. It, it's derived from palm oil. Mm-hmm. And um, the formulation that we were using was comprised of a, a, uh, a C8 and C10 fatty acid, which are middle chain fatty acids derived from plant-based products. And uh, it will be recognized in the organic industry. So our organic producers will be able to use it. And um, I'm hearing a lot of people that are, are, are certainly looking for the natural products or the, mm-hmm. the greener products. And this is certainly going to be one of those. We're also looking at other fatty acid products that uh, have a few different components to them. And we're going to be exploring those products here in the near future. So I think you're going to see a uh, more research done into natural control products here in the future, mm-hmm. because that's what our industry, or at least our consumers are really advocating. And I can understand that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dave, I've taken way more time than I told you I was going to take us. And I appreciate the information, the research that you you personally have been a part of to share with us here and to hear what's on the horizon for us. I think it, it's uh, good information for a lot of us and uh, definitely a good time of the year to be talking about fly control. So thanks for joining us here today on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Well, thank you for having me, Justin, and I, I, I can talk flies anytime. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, I'm actually kind of interested that when, when, this, when the product comes out you're talking about, I would be interested in doing a follow-up interview with you about that. I think that would be good. Okay, sounds good. All right. Well, thanks, Dave. Thank you, Justin. And again, my guest today, Mr. Dave Boxler. He is with the University of Nebraska Lincoln there in North Platte at their West Central Research and Extension Center. I appreciate him joining us here today to talk on this subject of fly control. And I, I think it's one of those things oftentimes every year we just, well, we'll just kind of do what we did last year. I mean, we know there's some resistance changes that we have to do and maybe change up some tags has been the case for those those of you that tag. But at the same time, it's kind of one of those things either, yeah, we just kind of do what we did last year, sort of a mentality with it. And I think today's show more than anything, maybe cause you to step back a little bit and reevaluate that from a standpoint of what is effective and also understanding that it really does have some financial ramifications to us as ranchers. So I hope you found the information useful today. And again, if you want to go back and listen to it, head to our podcast site at workingranchradio.com. Well, stay with us coming up next. Meteorologist Don Day steps in as we take a look at our long-term weather. We'll be back on the Working Ranch Radio show after this. Do you have a young child, grandchild, niece, or nephew that loves the weather and wants to learn more? Day Weather has produced a children's weather journal full of weather facts, fun weather experiments, coloring pages, and pages to record weather observations for every season of the year. The weather journal is for ages 3 to 7 and designed to be fun and educational. The interactive weather projects are fun for the whole family to take part in. For only $10, the Day Weather Weather Journal is a great gift idea for any occasion. Click on our Amazon link to order at dayweather.com. 
Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. Justin Mills here with you as we head now and take a look at our long-term weather today. Brought to you by AllFlex. Cattle identification and record keeping should be easy. So now you can tie your visual tag and your EID tag and the genetic data now to one management number with the AllFlex match sets. If you want to find out more, go to their website at allflexusa.com. And joining us now with a look at our long-term weather as he does each and every week is meteorologist Don Day. And Don, uh, we always like to look ahead in our weather forecast, but real quickly, the last week or two, I should say, we've seen some good rains falling across portions of the country that have really needed it. Now, whether they got it in time or not, and that was a story I'd read about the Southern Plains and some of that winter wheat area, that whether they got it in time or not is still yet to be determined. But nevertheless, moisture will take it when we get it. Yeah, you know, timing is everything sometimes, and sometimes the stars don't all line up. But if you're going to break uh, a drought or a very long dry cycle like we've seen in the Southern Plains, uh, you've got to just be thankful to get it when you get it. And while it may be a little late for some areas, there's also some areas getting rain, especially across portions of the Central Plains, uh, the Dakotas, uh, Nebraska, especially Nebraska and parts of eastern Colorado and eastern Wyoming, where the timing is pretty good on these badly needed rains. And we're also looking at the rain maybe being too much of a good thing for folks up in North Dakota trying to get out and get some planting mm-hmm. done. Uh, it's either been too cold or too wet. And right now it's getting too wet again. Yeah. When I look at this and, and we've a lot of the weather moisture wise has really been in the area just west of the continental divide out into not quite maybe as far east or close to the Missouri River in some ways. But when we look further east, it's been abnormally warm to me, it looks like. Yeah, well, it, it has been, although, I mean, there's been some ups and downs like you normally have in mm-hmm. spring. But, you know, you mentioned that that, you know, west of the divide is where it's really been wet all winter and into the beginning of the spring. But there is a bit more of a focal point for the weather to be a little bit more wet in the in the north central, central and south central areas of the U.S. And uh, that's going to benefit parts of the western Corn Belt. But there are some areas in the eastern and central Corn Belt that could uh, get a little bit of a moisture deficit. Mm-hmm. So we are looking at here over the next week a little bit of rain getting into those areas, spreading a little bit more to the east. But I'm cautiously optimistic there's going to be more rain uh, in the southern plains, in the central and northern plains, and also uh, in the western high plains east of the Continental Divide. So some of those areas that have been suffering the driest weather are going to continue to have some better chances. Well, I, I truly hope so. I'm one of those areas. I'm not necessarily in the Southern Plains, as we know, but it's been a little dry here, and I hope the moisture that we've had this next week will start to siphon a little bit more coming down. So when we look at that, we start looking into the latter half of May. How does that look as compared to where we were at in the first part of May? Well, what what is interesting about the, the second half of May is, is that I don't see any areas um that are going to be uh, let's say on the far side of the ledger of really cold or on the far side of the ledger really warm it looks like we're going to go into the second half of may with a fairly typical pattern which means there is going to be warmer temperatures on average across most of the central and western areas of the united states and um if we do see dry periods they're not going to be too long i do think shower and thunderstorm activity really in many areas from the Corn Belt to the rest of High Plains and Rockies will be common. And I do think there could even be um, some late May moisture still possible in the Great Basin states, even parts of California as well. 
And if that's the case, as we go into the month of June, you know, this is a good thing. What you want in the month of June is uh, some decent soil moisture, if you can carry that over mm-hmm. from May, and not jumpstart into summer with anything real hot. And at least at the moment, we don't see that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I have to tell you, as, as we've talked about here, I do keep pretty good accurate records of fog, and I'm showing June with a lot of fog events. However, I showed April with a lot of fog events. Now, that, and I've always told people, that's significant weather events. It doesn't necessarily guarantee moisture, but it's a change in the weather pattern. And I'm hoping for June that it's actually going to indicate moisture coming instead of just a change in weather. Right, and sometimes it's not exactly in your neck of the woods where mm-hmm. that, that fog forecast will work out. I mean, April uh, brought some tremendous snowstorms, yeah. you know, two or three of them in the region, but not necessarily right on top of the yeah. areas that had that, that fog <laughs> forecast. So, yeah, it's an indication maybe of, of what's to come down the roads. So we'll see. Um, the long-range modeling is hinting that June is going to be at least have the potential for weather than average conditions for many areas of the U.S., especially the middle part of the country. So uh, this pattern change we've had here lately may be an indication that that could certainly be a possibility looking ahead into June. You bet. Well, that's that's good because it's nice to go into July with a little green instead of going into July with brown. Yeah, this, you know, the, the next six weeks is really, really critical for a lot of the U.S. Uh, in terms of Uh, getting that spring moisture so when you get into summer and you have some of those hotter spells they're not so not so hard on everything Mm -hmm. and not so hard on the on the rangelands and not so hard on the end you bet all right well don appreciate the update here on our long-term weather forecast thank you and again that was meteorologist don day with a look at our long-term weather his website can be found at dayweather.com and from there you can also find that link to his daily video podcast that i find very valuable myself as i watch it on a regular basis you can take a look for yourself as he kicks that out every monday through friday morning well stay with us when we come back i'll give you a heads up of what's in store for next week on the working ranch radio show stick around we'll be back after this Well, coming up on next week's edition of the Working Ranch Radio Show, we're going to be penciling out the differences of AIing versus natural breeding with live bulls. I think you'll find it interesting. Be sure to tune in. A thank you to our sponsors here today, Allflex, Inherit Select from Zoetis, MLS Tubs, and Tank Toad, a remote water monitoring system. It's the one we use here on the X-Ring Ranch. The Working Ranch Radio Show is a production of Working Ranch Magazine, branded number one by America's Ranchers. If you'd like to get a hold of me, my email address is justin.workingranch at gmail.com. Be sure to join us next week at the same time, same place on your favorite podcast provider. I'm your host, Justin Mills. And until next time, keep your chin down and your mind in the middle. So long.